welcome to another episode of the Aquatic Mentors podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Van Eyck, and in this podcast, I interview an industry professional who has had years of experience in the aquatics field as a coach, thought leader, and global expert. So please extend a big welcome to the podcast for Wayne Goldsmith. Wayne has worked with coaches, athletes, teams and sporting organisations from 30 countries, offering training on coaching development, peak performance and leadership. After graduating from the University of Canberra with a Bachelor of Applied Science, Sports Science, Coaching and Sports Management, Wayne went to work with Swimming Australia in 1993 as the Manager of Sports Science, Sports Medicine. Wayne was able to connect with those in the sports science field and understand the, ad- the advances they could offer sport and then convert those findings into easy-to-understand information for coaches on pool deck. Through his business, More Gold Performance Consulting, Wayne has worked with many sporting organisations, including Swimming Australia, Triathlon Australia, Australian Rugby Union, AFL Teams, British Swimming, Cart Sport New Zealand, NRL teams and many, many more. Wayne is called on to audit and improve sporting organisations across the globe and has noticed a worldwide trend which is affecting the future of participation numbers in several sports. Through today's episode, Wayne shares insights into his work as well as his thoughts on swimming and where he sees swimming moving to in the future. Please share any of the hidden gems you find in Wayne's interview on our Facebook page, Aquatic Mentors, and you will find his contact details at the end of the show notes. If you want to share your aquatic story, contact me on my email, regionalswimclinics at outlook.com, regionalswimclinics at outlook.com, And check out our website, aquaticmentors.com.au, for our Season 1 ebook. So let's jump in and find out more about Wayne's journey in swimming. So, Wayne, how did you start your journey in swimming? Well, I didn't really plan to, actually. I used to work in a bank and I hated it, but I didn't have a lot of choice because I failed high school. I'm horribly ADHD and, as it turns out, dyslexic as well. And I didn't know that until I was 50 and explained a hell of a lot. But I was in the New South Wales school system. I got 120 out of 500 for my year 12. Didn't leave me a lot of job options, but eventually I was working in a bank and I just hated it. And I'd put on a lot of weight and I ran into an old school friend. Now, Laurie said, mate, you used to run, you used to play footy. You were always active. You need to lose a bit of weight, get in shape. And I started to run a little bit. And I got really fascinated in, in exercise. And this was now the, I left school 78. This was the late 80s. And he said, well, look, you seem to really thrive on this. Why don't you get into the sport for a living? So I did a level one strength and conditioning course, level one athletics, level one swimming as it was back then. And uh, just went through and really loved it. Couldn't get enough. And I wrote to the University of Canberra. And I thought, well, I want to be near the Institute of Sport. Who wouldn't? Yeah. And I wrote to them and they said, yep, um, sounds like a good idea, but your grades won't get you into the University of Canberra. And they set me, though, on a path. So in 1989, I went to TAFE in Sydney 
and I did science and I did math and then I had to sit a mature age entrance exam. Then I had to do an interview and eventually I got into University of Canberra. Almost flunked first term in a Bachelor of Coaching, Sports Science and Coaching. Somehow just kept going through that and eventually got through the end. The challenge was when I got to Canberra was looking for work and I'd been doing some athletics training and coaching and some strength and conditioning coaching in Sydney and a job came up for a local gym and I took the job and at the, the gym there was a pool and I went downstairs and I was just fascinated looking at the coaching and the way coaching was working. I didn't know who anybody was. I, I didn't have any idea about the sport really at all 89 and the coach was a lady called Carol Gathercole and the name meant nothing to me, but Carol and I clicked really well. And she said, well, look, I'm actually looking for an assistant coach. So I, I did a little bit of coaching with Carol. Couldn't get enough of it. It was just wonderful. I loved it. And I was studying and doing gym programs at night. And she said, well, look, my husband's a coach and still very naive. I didn't know who he was. Yeah. And my husband's a coach and he works at the Institute of Sport. He's having some health issues. He's looking for a little bit of support. So all of a sudden, I'm over at the pool in 1990, 1991, working with Terry Gathercole, who had been a world record holder, who had coached an Olympic champion, who had Lindley Frame, who would win the world championship gold for 100 breasts the following year, Phil Rogers, who won Olympic silver, I think, 92, a few others. So I had this bizarre thing from being somebody who worked in a bank to six months later, I'm studying at university. I'm working at the Institute of Sport with Terry. I'm an age group coach under Carol Gathercole and I'm working in a gym. So I started to get a whole range of, of opportunities from there. And it just, it just blossomed. I then started as part of working with Terry Gathercole. He introduced me to a guy called David Pine and David Pine and I become lifelong friends. I got a text from him half an hour ago and David was working at the Institute as a physiologist. So David and I started a, a friendship, which has lasted for what's that 30 years. We've been really close and it was just this unbelievable learning opportunity to be around some of those great minds. When we won the bid to host the Olympic games, John Talbot said, the first thing we need to try and be competitive is we need someone who can be the bridge and connect sports science to coaching. And they advertised a position called National Manager Sports Science, Sports Medicine for Swimming Australia. And I put my hand up and I thought, no chance. And look, it was, it was bizarre. But Talbot did a really good thing, as it turned out. He did an interview the week before I was interviewed. And he was on ABC and he, he said, look, we've got to change our direction. He said, in 84, we, we got one gold medal, which was the great John O'Seven. In 88, we got one gold medal, which was Duncan. 92, the only one who won a gold medal was Kieran. He said, look, what we're doing is not working. And he said, I believe we've got to shift to a more sprint-orientated approach. And he said, because 90% of all swimming events are 200 metres and down, I've just recruited Gennady Turetsky, and he's going to come and work at the Institute of Sport along with uh, Alex Popov, who will come in too. And we've got to become more face. So Talbot's talking about this. Anyway, when I go for the job interview later in the week, Talbot says uh, two things, which I never forget. One thing he says, oh, I was really nervous. He said to me, Wayne, describe yourself in three words. And I said, fat, dumb, and ugly. <laughs> and uh, a true in a job interview in front of those guys. 
And Talbot looked at me and he said, well, obviously you're not dumb. And that, that cracked me up. I relaxed then. And, yeah. and he said, uh, he said, Wayne, uh, he said, I don't know how much you know about swimming, but what direction do you think we should take? And I've gone, well, Don, I'm not sure if you're aware. 90% of swimming events are 200 metres and down. And I think we've got to pursue a more sprint-orientated approach. And he said, you could just say, okay, I've got one tick across the line. And one of the other interviewers was the late and uh, very lovely Evelyn Dilmackey. And she said, Wayne, what do you think the key is to the success of the job? The week before, I'd also read an interview she'd done where she said it's about unity and we've got to come together as one nation to get state borders. We've just got to work together. So I said, well, Evelyn, that's an interesting question. Um, I think we've got to work together. We've got to be one day. So I'd done a lot of homework. I, I was so poor at the time, Katrina, that I had an old briefcase and I got some shoe polish and I polished up the side of the briefcase <laughs> to make it look like I was a little bit more flash than I was. Yeah. Now, the problem was that half the shoe polish came off on my pants when I walked in <laughs> as it was swinging by my side. So I remember that very much. But that that wow. getting getting that job, which was a shock, that changed my life because the day I started, Sweetenham started. And yeah. the first thing that I did was sit down, have a couple of beers with Bill in a hotel in Canberra. And he said what his expectations were as the national coach of the, the, the junior program, yeah. uh, the talent development program, which was the top program at that stage. I was good friends with David Pine. I had Ralph Richards in the next room, who again has become a lifelong friend of mine. Gennady and I became really close friends, may he rest in peace. And I was able to walk up and down with him a few times. So I've just had this mind-blowing opportunity to go again from just being some guy who knew very little about sport in the late 80s to now being surrounded by the best minds. And then to add to that, Talbot's expectation was that I might be on deck with David Pine and Gennady Turetsky on Monday. On Wednesday, I could be in Perth talking to coaches and parents about what was going on on the other side of the country. So I remember really clearly we had a great nutritionist called Dr. Louise Burke and amazing mind and so influential. And Louise was working on some carbohydrate replacement sports drinks in the early nineties. And even though none of the work had been published, there were some promising results and we were talking and I was able to take that, what she was working on, with her permission, of course, and then I might be in Townsville the next week and say, the AIS is working on these sports drink things and this is what we're finding, blah, blah, blah. So instead of waiting for a year, two years for her work to be published, we were sharing that information immediately with the coaches around the network. And so again, I go from the AIS working with Gennady, I might be the next week talking to Ken Wood, I might be talking to Bernie Mulroy, I might be talking to Popey, I might be in Melbourne talking to Lee Nugent. And every time you're speaking, you're learning and it was a wonderful opportunity. So that, that really kicked it all off. Wow. That is absolutely amazing. And to think, I suppose, I mean, from my point of view is normally to get these roles, you need this university degree and you need that and this and that. And it was just by you taking the opportunity and going, well, what the hell? I might as well give it a go. And then finding, you know, a bit of knowledge from someone saying, well, look, you're really going well. You seem to be enjoying the sports side that's taken up a step. And then just like you said, listening 
and taking in that knowledge from, you know, interviews that people have done and then being able to have the balls to turn around and say it straight back to them during the interview. I think that's amazing. It shows it is just about opportunity and taking those leaps of faith and just giving it a go. Yeah, it really is if you want it. I think and they, I think there's a, a story I've read or someone said, once in your lifetime, go for an impossible job. And to me, that was it because I, I know and when I spoke to Don afterwards, there were two or three reasonably good academics with PhDs who went for the job. And I said, hey, Don, why did you pick me? And he said that if we wanted an academic, there was a million of them. He said, I wanted someone who could talk with the academics, but then talk to coaches. He said that was, he yeah. said, he said that wasn't about being a, uh, a researcher. It wasn't about being an academic. I didn't want an experienced coach because they would probably most likely talk about coaching in their own terms. I wanted someone who could say, oh, let's look at this, what we're doing and not filter it, just basically translate it and communicate it to coaches. And the only skill that I think I've really got is one that an old friend, again, may she rest in peace, the, the beautiful Jackie Fairweather uh, used to say, she used to say, Goldie, you're the master of the bloody obvious. <laughs> and, and she was right that the only skill I think I've really got is I'm able to take fairly complex stuff, think about it a little bit and then translate it a little bit yeah. for coaches and parents and that's really what my job was to do that. And I think even today, uh, still, that's what I do is I do a lot of people think I make stuff up and sometimes it's based on experience, but a lot of time I read research and I do a bit of study and I talk to academics like David Pine and, and a lot of others and I kick it around and go, okay, well, there's a bit of research behind this. How do I then get that and make it practical and usable for a coach that's working in mudgy or working in cans how do I write it in a way or put it in a way that they can actually use it and make it have an impact on their athletes yeah and that's one thing I find like the mathematical and the science side you know psychology I'm good with but you know biology and all that stuff I do take a while to take that in and I found when I jumped in I thought I'll give the bronze coaching the development coaching a go with Asta and I jumped in and I went, wow, this stuff is above my head. And I mean, I probably skate through getting the qualification by the hairs of my chin. But I think, and then I looked at it, I thought, there's no way I'm going to go up and up and up on that because I just don't understand that side. But for someone to be able to translate it to, you know, us back on the floor and on the pool deck and really sort of get it in a way that we can understand it, be able to take that scientific and break it down and not be fancy with the words and things like that. I think that's exactly what that bridging, that gap needs. We need both sides of it and then connect it. It's interesting you say the level one and I've been on a panel or a committee with the National Rugby League for a little while on rewriting their coach education stuff. And I've spoken to Asker about it. And look, I'm not, critical of Asa they, they've been wonderful supporters of mine and even have been even this week with uh, support of something I've been doing I, but I think like many sports we've got it wrong and this and Asker have changed a lot with the way they approach it but there's just way way too much sports science at beginning yeah. coaching and and you know you look at it and you say okay you've got an eight-year-old kid in the pool what do they need they need to be they need to feel safe 
they need to be engaged. We need to connect with them and inspire them. We need to teach them some basic skills. We need to build a relationship with them and their families. We need to help them fall in love with the experience of swimming. Knowing what ATP is has got nothing to do with any of that. VO2 max, anaerobic threshold, periodization, the Yerkes Dodson inverted U hypothesis, all that stuff that we've based our coach development on since the 1980s is completely inappropriate at grassroots level. And then when you have a coach come in, you know, maybe a parent coach comes and says, oh, look, I'd like to get into coaching. And they sit down and say, I just want to know how to keep kids happy, teach them a few basic skills and put a smile on their face. And we'd say, first of all, we're going to talk to you about oxygen transport dynamics and mitochondrial volume density and wonder why they don't come back next week. And not only that, why the kids go, I have no relationship with this coach. All I'm doing is laps. All I'm doing is building this mythical aerobic base because that's what we promote right from that start level. We've got so many kids, Katrina, sitting at home playing Xbox and PS4 who have got incredible capillarization, wonderful oxygen transport, but hate swimming. Yeah. Yeah. So we did this amazing job of building the physiology, but we also did a wonderful job of building hatred and resentment against the sport. We go the other way. We have kids who just love to come to the pool, hang out with their friends and learn. If we've got to figure out a way of building aerobic capabilities when they're 15, who cares? We'll figure it out. Mm. But if they don't, I mean, the only kid who doesn't get better is the one who's not there. And who cares what sort of aerobic background they've got if they hate the sport? And when you look at what's happening in rugby in New Zealand and other places that I work around the world, They've got it now. They've got it that the shift in coaching has to be towards relationship building, experiences, connecting, engaging, and inspiring the hearts and minds of kids, getting them to fall in love with what they do, all that stuff. If they've got talent and they're in love with what they'll do, they persist with it. If they've got incredible talent and they hate it, they'll walk away. And, you know, hopefully we're getting smarter that instead of, I mean, geez, we've given those beginning coaches we've given them more drills than bunnings and you know they they walk out going okay i got one arm freestyle i've got chicken wing freestyle i've got fist clinched freestyle i've got arm and off the board i've got double arm this way i've got pop five drill i've got well it's great show me how you build an experience with six eight-year-olds yeah that's all that matters so hopefully we're getting better at it and as a consequence we won't scare off first-time coaches Mm. with excessive sports science which is just not required yeah and I find that too I go and present so I've got for Aster I do the swim teacher babies and toddlers and competitive strokes and it's one thing I brought up on a Facebook post in regards to you go do the competitive strokes course and I will ultimately same with the swim teacher get asked of you know how do I talk to a swimmer about this or competitive stroke how do we deal with teaching the kids to relate to them and about build a life outside of swimming and this is what the country clubs are after and I said you know do you guys in metro or other places get these questions oh no they need to be made into a workshop and you need to focus on this stuff in your course and I sort of thought well I'm getting these questions in a standard course and I'll touch on what I know as well but and, and that's my plan is to develop sort of online coaching courses that work on those sort of things that, okay, you sit and watch, you know, a video for half an hour or something, but it's more specific on that side 
And then, you know, you do your first course, the ASTA course or OSWIM or whatever course you're going to do that's based on that development. But it is something I'm sort of heading off here, but it's something that I've been asked every, every time I do a course, it's about how do you relate to swimmers and what about their mental health or their physical health? There's always a question involved in that. Yeah, look, it's true. And uh, the the challenge is these things take sometimes many generations to change. But because we've got swimming coaches who learn from swimming coaches who learn from swimming coaches who learn from yeah. swimming coaches and everyone's got a story about their favourite breaststroke drill and how do you correct a screw kick in breaststroke? And everyone thinks that's important. And it is important in context but again you know I've worked in the last two years even through COVID I'm working I've worked with football in the UK rugby in New Zealand rugby league here AFL I promise you they're moving in this direction they are already going that beginning thing is just games and fun and enjoyment now the kids walk into us and we're saying straight away you need a PB so you can qualify for a meet so you can get in that competitive environment you get on the pathway which I absolutely hate and we're going to build your base and all. And they're going, hang on, I just want to play with my mates. I just want to kick a footy around. I just want to do a few laps. I just want to, and the safety element aside, it, it's like anything else. If you walk into McDonald's and you say, I want a cheeseburger and they say, no, we're going to give you a chicken burger. Well, you don't go back to that shop. And mm. the kids are saying, I just want an experience. that's going to be fun with a great coach that I really love with a bunch of friends and, you know, maybe have a race on Friday nights and, you know, learn a bit along the way. And we're immediately saying, how quickly can we accelerate them into regular squad training? Yeah. That's not what they wanted. And then we we sit back and go, well, kids are soft and parents have got so much on and the internet, it's it's got nothing to do with that. That It's all about relationships. If you're in any relationship, if you love the person and you, or you love the environment, you'll persist no matter what obstacles are thrown in your way. Mm. And one of the things rugby league does now and rugby union, a few of the other sports, they've shifted really the start of the pathway to about 14, 15 years of age. Up until then, it's just participation. Get them in, make it fun, have a great time. The ones who get to those mid-teens who go, you know, what I want to play for the NRL, I want to play AFL, I want to go EPL, I want to play super netball. They, It's called critical capture point around those mid-teens. And then... Of course, coaches with great sports science and periodization and technical knowledge and tapering and peaking and drilling. Of course, absolutely, we need it, but not at eight, nine, ten, because yeah. it's just not an issue. It, it really it is not the critical issue at that stage, and it's going to take a long time to shift. But I can see some really good signs, and I know Brendan and Gary from Astor are really pushing, and I believe very much in the right direction. Yeah, but I also think when you come out and do a course, and I find this with the you know new swim teachers and new coaches coming in, you do a course with them and you are bombarding them with so much information. And myself coming in, doing these courses, I mean, I've been teaching for six to seven years now, and I really think at present I'm starting to connect drills. I'm starting to take in and understand that knowledge now in regards to that next step for me beforehand it's been how do you get a kid involved in swimming and get them and then doing laps and doing it takes that time to digest that knowledge we can't expect them to know that within either a day or two day course and bombard them with so much stuff and then expect them to go out and be able to coach the next olympic athlete now 
Mm. Yeah, it, there needs more training in between. And I think that's the one thing. We can give them as much information as you can, but it's up to them if they how much they take on. I'm writing a national swimming syllabus for a, another country. And the recommendation for them is that at beginning level, we give the coaches the training program. We just give them a training program. We say this yeah. is national indoor swimming program a obviously designed and developed some good coaching minds and say just do it because that immediately if you tell them what to do if you say here is your training so it's monday afternoon and the young kids so they won't be doing morning so monday afternoon do this tuesday afternoon do this Wednesday. give them the programs why Mm -hmm. because then we can take periodization out of it we can take session design out of it we can take most of the physiology out of it let's give them that stuff what do we put in our courses things that they need to know that they can't download i often say to people have a look at your your coaching courses anything that you're standing there delivering that they can download for free or watch for free on their smartphone take it out of your course you're wasting their time what can't they learn very difficult to teach someone how to build a relationship online or how to create a positive learning environment or uh, very difficult to help someone create a coaching philosophy Mm. online in terms of training sets and all those things. Let's give them that stuff. Having someone sitting there and pulling their hair out, thinking about how do I periodize a 12 month program for a 10 year old backstroker? Who cares? It doesn't matter. You could probably (laughs) probably get them trained twice a week and buy them a paddle pop on the way to the pool for, for competition. That'll be just as effective as writing a detailed multidisciplinary multifactorial periodized plan. Cause they're 10 year old kids. They yeah. still think Pokemon is real. So <laughs> sitting there and, and teaching coaches that it's all about lung function and oxygen transport is just the wrong way to go. Yeah. And, and oh, look, I think we are changing. We really are. And, and look, I feel this really personally because I was in my role with swimming in the, in the 90s, I was largely responsible for promoting a science-based approach because that's all we knew. And I still believe in quality science and relevant science with the right level of athletes. I just don't think it's appropriate at participation level. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I know for me, anxiety can be an issue and my confidence, I have low confidence, but coming out and having all that stuff and not knowing that and not being able to communicate with some of these coaches and they look at you and they go, oh, and I feel, I judge myself. I feel dumb because, and I feel stupid because I don't know this stuff. And now I'm cottoning on, you know, it's stuff that you learn over the years. And I talked to Hayden and Simon, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast that, you know, they've been in it for years and the wisdom they've developed over the years, I just automatically thought that they were 20 years older than me, but you know, they're only four or five years. And I'm thinking, man, how do you know that stuff? But they've had the experience. But I know coming in, I felt stupid because I didn't know that stuff. Now, luckily, I've got the passion and I've stuck into it and I've gone in my own way and things. But imagine how many grassroots coaches are coming in and then thinking I'm too stupid and I can't do it and then going out. Instead of just being themselves. And I think the first question you've got to ask every coach at the beginning of their journey is why are you here? What, why are you, why do you coach? And we do an exercise, I mean, we're at all levels of coaches, but one is we ask them, the, we do the why exercise because the first thing I usually do is I'll say, why do you coach? 
Um, oh, because I like swimming. And so well, we all like swimming, but why do you coach? Well, I want to make a difference. I want to contribute to kids learning something that might save their life or the life of someone they care about. But why is that important to you? And just to get them to get to a point where they are, you know, why well, the reason I coach is uh, I, I strongly believe that every child should learn to swim safely and effectively, you know, and just get them to think about it. And that understanding underpins everything. If you very rarely you get someone who says, the reason I'm here is to be the best coach in the world, to produce gold medalists and world champions, world record holders. That's a different equation, but you very rarely hear that. And that discovery in that first session, sitting around as a group and saying, why do you coach? What is it about coaching? My definition of coaching is, it's the art of inspiring change through emotional connection. That's what difference between coaching and training. Training is giving people the capability to change an element of their fitness or their speed. But, you know, coaching is what we do is all about change, but through relationships and through emotional connection. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to people and say, tell me about the best, and we do this in our sessions, say, tell me about the best coach you've ever known. They rarely go, they had two PhDs, they are really, really, that might be there somewhere, but they'll say, you know what, the best coach I've ever really believed in me, man, they just, they listened to me. They made me feel special. Okay, well, what is what are they saying? Well, my coach cared about me. My coach really had a great relationship with me. My coach looked at me more than an athlete. Well, okay, if that's what people are saying, then let's teach coaches to do that. Yeah, That's the most important part of the business. Even when I'm working with elite level, you go around and, well, I love telling a story about working with Eddie Reese, the great uh, US coach. And I, I'm lucky that coaches give me a bit of a free reign. And when, last time I was talking to Ed over in Texas, and he said, go around and talk to the boys in it you like to do. He said, feel free. And so I talked to all the boys and I said, tell me about Eddie. Not one of them said his technical knowledge is unsurpassed, you know, or his, his knowledge of uh, Benui's principle is what makes him so good. All of them said, God, I'd do anything for him. He's like my dad. Jeez, he loves us. We know he cares. I say, okay, well, if he's the best coach that I've ever seen in certainly in the United States. And his athletes are saying, they're telling me why he's so good. Then surely we've got to go, well, that's what it's about. We've got to teach our coaches to be that, to be the person that those athletes are saying, wow, cares about me, is invested in my well-being, really loves me. We've got this wonderful relationship. I feel inspired by him. If that's what they're saying such an exceptional coach is all about, then surely that's what we're going to be teaching. Yeah, and I think that's it. And I've noticed lately, like, I had someone contact me and say, oh, we're trying to go in the country. We're trying to connect with Popey because we think this is what he does and he's a fantastic coach because this is the exact same thing. And I think, well, it's amazing. Like, you know, they're pinpointing these coaches they want because of the, the values and the beliefs that they have and what they show. And like you said, it's not often that we get someone coming in saying, I want to be an elite coach. I did a course in Horsham and this young fella came up to me and he said oh thank you so much that was really great I love the course he said I want to be a coach of an Olympian and I said oh really wow and he's like yeah yeah, no I wanted to be an Olympic coach and I said oh normally kids will say they want to be an Olympic swimmer he said oh yeah I want to do that but I really want to be an Olympic coach as well and I thought to myself well when you get those it's about showing them the pathway using a network to connect them with someone who can show them that way 
And then if you get someone who wants to just teach and coach in grassroots, it's about connecting them and showing them their pathway through it all. So I think, yeah, it's definitely that the look and what the coach, what the kids want out of the coaches is not that technical side. Absolutely. Yeah. You've spoken about a few lessons that you've learned over your time in the sport and in all sport. Is there a big lesson that stood out for you or is there a couple of lessons that have been really standouts? Yeah, well, there, there's a lot that, I mean, Sweetenham's been a huge influence and Sweetenham was on my bridal party and and I've known, and he's a great mate. I had a few beers with him a few Sunday nights ago. The thing I've learned from Sweetenham is you never stop learning. I mean, Sweetenham, there was a time certainly in the 70s and 80s where Bill's reputation for hard work and uncompromising commitment to, to workload was, was well-deserved at the time, but if you talk to Bill now, his his wisdom and his understanding of the sport and his understanding of, of where coaching is is quite remarkable. And a few years ago, I was he asked me to come on deck with him, which is always an honour. And he was working with some athletes from Argentina. And towards the end of workout, he had a very talented young middle long distance female swimmer and the last set I think was 12100s on about 130 knowing that all your listeners have just written that down and look she was holding 64 65 long course push and I mean pretty decent athlete obviously and anyway at the end of the set Bill said he said he asked me what I thought and I said oh I said oh she's got a bit there Bill so a nice straight beautiful relaxation nice soft hands we'll talk about that a lot and and I said I think she's got a bit there and he said yeah I agree now the old Bill from the 1980s when I first knew him and the old Bill would stand there and go, if you want to be a bloody Olympian, you got to do this and get, you know, and the power of his will and the force of his personality, he might've got her to do another 2100s. I don't know, but you know, Sweetenham, he went over to her and he said, he said, that was a pretty good job. He said, if you had to rate your workout out of 10, what do you think? She said, Oh, about seven out of 10 coach. What do you think you could do to make it an eight? She said, oh, I think I could do another two or three a little bit quicker and maybe split a little bit faster. And he said, that's a really good idea. And off she went. Now, he's achieved exactly the same thing. The athlete got up a level. He never raised. His leg was a bit bad that day. He didn't even stand up. His voice wasn't above a whisper, but he got an athlete to willingly choose to set their standards to a higher level. Wow. And we went out for breakfast afterwards, and you know, which always turns into bloody three hours of solving <laughs> the problems of the world. And he asked me what I thought. I said, mate, I've never seen you coach better. I said, because you still have that relentless commitment to winning, but you're smart enough to adapt to the, the current way of working with athletes, which is them choosing to take responsibility to be all they can be. Yeah. And so, you know, if Sweetenham can do that, he's now in his seventies and if he's still going, I can be a better coach that I'm, I, I'm astounded uh, by him uh, constantly. Ian Pope, who you mentioned, if I had kids and I was living in Melbourne, he would be my first choice with no disrespect to anyone else, because I know he would love my kids so much that they would be supported and cared for. Uh, he's a wonderful human being. And uh, what I learned from him is just that old repetition of the Carlisle phrase which is kids don't care how much you know they want to know how much you care yeah. and then Popey lives that he I mean he's brilliant technically he's fantastic he's, he's another learner all the time but just a, a wonderful human being people like David Marsh uh, coach Marsh from the US 
what I learned from Marshy and it, it, it made a big difference. I talk a lot about soft skills, about coaching, commitment, how do you coach things like confidence and, you know, the, the, we're by nature, we're counters and measurers, what we see, we believe, because when we see it, we can coach it. So I can coach speed and I can coach endurance. I can coach power. But if I say coach confidence or show me how you coach mental toughness, how do you coach commitment? I was struggling for models that I could actually do that. And David Marsh and I were on deck when I had a brief stint doing some work with the Americans before the Gold Coast Pan Packs. And Marsh and I were talking and Brian Lochte was in the water. And I remember the moment, it was a Wednesday afternoon and in Brisbane. And I said, if you could do talent ID based on a non-physical quality, what would it be? And he said, commitment. And I said, I agree with you. I said, but why? And he said, well, once someone is committed, there are no excuses. It takes what it takes he said, to me, that's critical. And I said, Marcia, I agree with you, but the challenge we've got is if I'm in a, let's say, level two, level three, you know, a silver bronze sort of level coaches who are working with competitive swimmers and try to help them evolve the qualities they need to be successful at elite level. I said, if I'm working with them and I say, I'm going to show you how to coach commitment. What does it look like? And Marshy came up with this plan, this model, and he said, well, I believe that in any given situation, when you give an athlete a choice between doing things the easy way or the hard way, a committed athlete, and you, for the hard way, you could say the right way or a better way. But he said, an athlete who's committed to getting better will choose deliberately to do things the right way. So we had this opportunity where Lochte's going up and down the pool, and he said, look, He's coming to the flags now, like every swimmer in the world, he has to choose, do I breathe twice inside the flags? Do I breathe once inside the flags? Do I not breathe inside the flags? Do I ferociously attack the wall, come to the middle of the lane, kick the tiles off the wall, like Laurie used to say, streamline until my feet go past the flags, explode to the surface, don't breathe first three strokes. He's got to make that choice, not me. All I've done is give him the skill and explain to him the effect of choosing to do things the right way the committed way so I stood there and watched Lochte he's probably the best underwater athlete that we've seen in the sport and he said that's it and I walked away and I thought that's it that's I can now from that that cue so then what I say to swimmers and coaches now is I say to coaches don't tell and yell you're wasting your time mm-hmm. connect and engage with the swimmer and say what do they want to do kid says I want to go to nationals coach Okay, kid breeds inside the flags. Instead of screaming at them, do it again, which is a waste of time. Is you say, how many times did you breathe inside the flags? Twice, okay. Why did you choose to take two breaths inside the flags? Well, what are we trying to do? We're trying to go to nationals, coach. When we go to nationals, how many breaths do you think most of the best athletes and you with your aspiration, how many breaths should we be taking inside the flags? What does Kate Campbell do? You know, what is the best? Well, they don't take any breaths. All right, so is there a way that you could do that again and maybe go a little bit faster and do it? Well, coach, I'll do another one. I won't bring so flags. That's a really good choice you've made. You know, and I say to coaches, say to coaches, if you're yelling, you've got it wrong. It's not about yelling. It's not about the volume of voice. Where we are now, and I learned this from Bill and Popey certainly and Marshy, is that if you present to them choices, show them how their choice, not yours, how their choice gives them the success that they're trying to achieve. Everything changes because they're then taking responsibility. So if you're standing there telling and telling and telling, they can choose to ignore. But if you ask anyone a question, they have to engage. 
once they've engaged, it's in the problem solving center of their brain where they're going, how do I do that? How do I do that? Okay, that's how I do it. They then have ownership over their own preparation. They accept ownership and take responsibility for their own performance. That's where we're at. And that's where all those guys have shifted. And so now a lot of the work I do is based on talking to coaches about how do we get to that point where particularly teenagers are now saying, I choose to be remarkable. I choose to be extraordinary, I cho- but then showing them what it looks like. So breathing every second in, fly, coming to the middle of the lane, not breathing last four strokes, finish on a full stroke with your hips up nice and high. All that's, once you show them, it's then their choice to execute it if they want the consequence of being successful. Those three guys particularly, Terry Gathercole, going way back, we were working with three kids, three breaststrokers doing a breaststroke set, and I was doing sports science, and I thought I knew everything. They were they were off their time cycle. They weren't hitting their, their goal time. Uh, they were on repeat time, but they just weren't on cycle where they needed to be. And I said to Terry, and I thought I was really smart, and I went over the stopwatch, and I said, hey, they're, they're off time. They're on cycle. And he said, yeah, I know. And I said, well, what are you going to do? You know, I'm thinking he's going to rev them up. And and all he did was move his chair a little bit so that he could get eye contact every time the breaststrokers came up and they went back on cycle. And, you know, that, again, you're, yeah. you're thinking the subtlety of coaching, the yeah. the subtlety of relationship building that the experienced coaches have got because they have the relationship with the athletes. That is just fundamental to everything. Uh, and there have been thousands of conversations with Joe King just before he died in 97, where I said, if you were going to start a club again, start from scratch, what would you do first? And he said, I'd start a social program because I think where swimming is going, it's got to build like a community. People have got to feel mm-hmm. welcome and happy before they swim. That was 97. Wow. And of course, Carlisle. I mean, Carlisle was a wonderful friend and uh, an incredible influence. I mean, beyond belief, I'd, we could do five hours just on on him but just a remarkable guy and and uh, his influence on the sport his influence on all of us is uh, is beyond I think what most people understand even the way we coach and the way we do what we do day to day so much of it came from Forbes and Ursula and remarkable people so I've been blessed to know so many brilliant people over a long period of time. I think that's it you've taken the opportunities you've gotten to know so many great people but listen to what they've said you haven't just gone in and you know been cocky and said oh I know all this stuff and you've actually absorbed what they've said and then gone and put it in place and then had the the great nows to be able to then share it with other coaches and hopefully made an influence on the way and it's just amazing that you've been able to get in, in contact and and learn from so many fantastic people it's amounted to, I think, of being a little humble when you learn. And as you can see, I do like to talk because it's, it's my favourite stuff. Talking about coaching <laughs> and learning is what I love to do. And I'm going to go pill deck in a little while with some Australian water polo coaches, two Serbian guys, and they're extraordinary. They're coming at it from a very different perspective. But uh, I don't think I've ever seen two people who care about their athletes the way these guys do. But at the same time, the amount of work the girls are doing is extraordinary but they've created a harmonious environment where the work gets done willingly and gladly and everybody just it's just we just do it we just move on and so even tonight I'll learn something from these guys tonight Turetsky was an incredible influence and I again if you talk to people like Shannon Rollison and people who were around who took the time to think about what Gennady was actually saying 
there was a lot there. And I mean, people love to talk about themselves. And I know I used to walk up and down with Gennady and a great story from Gennady is that when he came out, he put out a video to try and make a little bit of money, which showed Alex doing some drills. And of course, everybody's jumped on it because everyone thinks drills are the, the key. And that's why I'm broke because I don't sell anything. But there was this video that went out about Alex doing pop-up drills and everybody, had, I still see people doing them. Most of them don't do them very well. But, and so I used to walk up and get down with Gennady and I almost never see Alex do drills. And it's, I said to Gennady one day, I said, mate, you know, there's people in Western Australia and Darwin have all got your video and they're all doing pop-up drills. And he laughed and he said, yeah, drills don't improve technique. And I <laughs> laughed and, and I said, well, what do you do to improve technique? And so what he would do with, with Alex was they would come in and speak in Russian. And I, I mean, again, I had hours walking up and down, weeks, months, uh, walking up and down with him. And he'd walk up and down and he'd, Alex would swim and Gennady would ask the, you know, the speed to go up. And then he'd get to a point where his technique broke down and Gennady would stop. They'd talk about things. Alex would talk about how it felt. He'd talk about backwards and forwards and they'd go again. But he didn't do drills. And yeah. I thought how funny it was that everyone was looking for the shortcut to become Popov by doing drills. And yet most of the time he was working on technique in partnership with his coach, changing and varying speed to see where his technique broke down. And that was just, Gennady was, a, was quite brilliant and at times, and he gave us a lot. I don't know a lot of people fully realize what a revolutionary thinker he was. And again, someone we've, we've lost in the last few years and very sadly lost to the sport. Wow, what amazing insight. And there you are. There's the scoop for everyone that <laughs> drills don't actually improve. Wow. Um, there was a, one of Gennady's other great lines, and we had a memorial service online, which was kept fairly quiet. But Barry Prime and Jim Fowley, who are great friends and, and wonderful guys, and they organised uh, where we all got online and we swapped stories and Popov came in and Thorpey came in and others and we we're just telling Gennady stories. But I'd forgotten a line Gennady said, every swimmer is different, so every technique has to be different. Yeah. And yeah, I'd forgotten that. that. You know, I'd really forgotten that, you know, he said, the idea is not to have a drill to make everybody look like the same way. The idea is to look at the swimmer have some concepts around head and hip position and around handy. And I, I, I stole the idea from him and just said, you know, the only swimmer who's textbook perfect is the kid whose picture is in the textbook, everybody else. And I'm shocked sometimes in different parts of the world, I go where they still talk about Benui's principle as law, where they still talk about 45 degree hand pitch angles and 90 degrees at elbow on catch as the only way of doing things. And, if you actually spend time to look at swimmers, there's very, very few who are absolutely 45, 90. So, you know, Gennady used to talk about concepts. He said, instead of worrying about, is it 85 or 90? He said, what's important? Relaxed breathing at high speed to best stay calm and relaxed at high speed. You know, great relationships. The faster you want to go, the more relaxed you have to be. Make sure the head and hips are in the right position to keep your hands soft so you can feel the water. He would talk about concepts and have those and then apply that to whatever the swimmer had, whatever they could do with it and, and adapt your 
technical model to the athlete rather than force every athlete into your technical model. Yeah. And again, Gennady was talking about that 30 years ago. And I still see when I travel different parts of the world, people still talking about hand pressure differentials between the top and bottom surface of the hand. When we had, when I was working for swimming, we went to the Australian National University. We went to uh, someone who was teaching aeronautical design. And I explained to him Benui's principle. And he said, Benui's principle doesn't apply to human beings because this is such a small percentage of the overall body. He said it applies to planes and applies to albatross and birds because they've got huge wingspans relative to their overall body and relative to the speed that they're moving. He said, Vanuis would not apply to human movement. Why do you guys talk about it? And I mean, wow. again, we, we knew this a long, long time ago, but I've seen a textbook in the last 18 months from an unnamed country in the Northern Hemisphere who still tries to teach learn to swim teachers and beginning level coaches this picture of a wing with the hand pressure differential and saying that's the way people swim yeah so again you've got to keep learning and adapting and challenging what is and thinking about what could be and that's the thing like when I go on for the competitive strokes and also swim teachers and things like that presenting the courses I say to them you are here you're learning the basics you are going to teach these swimmers the basics give them the understanding of what happens, and then it becomes their individual stroke. They will then devise their own way that makes them quicker and faster, which suits them, which is not going to be the same for everyone in your squad. And it is just about getting out there and getting them teaching and then learning what's specific for each person Absolutely. and teaching individuals. You ask any coach, they, they may forget their swimmer's name, but they know their stroke. They'll yeah. always remember their stroke. And that's because we're not teaching pop of stroke we're not teaching Thorpe or Campbell or Horton stroke to everybody I'm developing Susie's stroke for her I'm developing John's stroke for John you're giving them the tools and the concepts to develop their stroke you're not making John swim like a member of the national team because he can't every swimmer is different every technique's different you take ideas you take concepts and models and say what how do I help develop john's stroke for john it isn't gonna work with peter that concept is so bloody important to say to coaches yeah sure you your swimmer doesn't have that perfect joint angle that you've read about in you know the law of swimming biomechanics it doesn't matter because most of them don't but i remember after 90 long way back 92 96 olympics you used to hear these reports from fina showing three-dimensional modeling of hands and even in 92, we saw in the freestyle winners. So the 200-400 winner was a guy called Sadovia. His hand entry was a little bit of a finger spread. Kieran had sort of a, a little bit of a different approach. The guy who won the 100, was a, which was Popov, was he was a little bit different. So you had these amazing freestylers whose none of them had a 45-degree hand pitch, but, <laughs> but all of them, good head and hips, strong, solid core, Nice, powerful, relaxed kick initiated from the hip. Soft hands on entry. Rhythm and flow. I mean, they had all those things, but they didn't. And I just say to people, don't obsess with the minutiae of of joint angles. You're losing the plot if you're worrying about whether or not a 10-year-old has a 40 degree or 45 degree. If their head and hips are in the right position, if they're breathing, if they're staying relaxed, they have a nice flowing kick. 
who cares what the hand entry angle is? Worry about that when they're half a second behind Ledecky. That's that's probably when you get excited yeah. about it. But and all of that, as we start at the beginning, Katrina, takes you away from coaching. Mm. If you have an obsession about minutiae of technical detail with little kids and you're not building a relationship with them, they're not going to be around to use their 45-degree end pitch angle. That's exactly it. Takes it away. Don't worry about that stuff until, yeah, they're up with Kate Ledecky, they're up with Kate Campbell That at that time. That's when they need it. That's very, very well said. So what's been the highlight of your journey so far? Talking to you. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm all flushed now. Thank you. <laughs> I get highlights every day, just even some things I've learned today about dealing with athletes. It's usually when you get a chance to make a difference to an athlete and you can see it and there's a wonderful line, which I think is attributed to a philosopher called Pavare, which says, we don't remember days, we remember moments. Yeah. And you, know, you remember moments when you're talking to an athlete and you feel really connected and you feel that you're sharing something of value with them that's going to help them. And you know, I think a lot of moments where I've, I've got to speak with athletes and challenge them or being honest and direct with them or give them the message or the information that they needed at that specific moment in time is always a, a highlight. And I mean, also some moments where you've changed yourself. So I was doing some work with the NRL in, in Sydney with the West Tigers and we'd had a loss and it was a Friday night and it was Sydney football stadium. And the captain at that team was a, a guy called Robbie Farah and an incredibly focused guy. And he went and he did the media and he came back and everyone had gone. There was just him and me in the change rooms. And I was watching him and he packed. I mean, this, is a, this is a guy who was in the state of origin team, who was a captain of an NRL team, professional player, probably getting a million bucks a year, packed his own dinner for after the game to make sure he had the right food. And then we went out in the recovery area and he did contrast baths and he stretched and then he got himself warm. And I just remember talking to him about, what it takes to be an athlete and in just about the attention to detail and taking responsibility and ownership of your own preparation and recovery. And you get little moments like that, incredibly special moments with athletes that never leave you. Or even recently I'm working with another NRL team and I have a great trust relationship with the coach and uh, he lets me walk around the field and talk to the players when I see things that I think I can make a difference. And I was out on the field a few weeks ago and the captain was talking to the players and he said, uh, we've got to do this. We've got to get up and do this. We've got to get up and do that. And I thought for a while about what he was saying. And I grabbed him. And I said, who's we? And he said, well, all the players. And I said, people don't work like that because in that group of 20, three guys are with you. Four or five are looking out at the birds, some of them have phased in and out, but they've all thought who's going to do it. Somebody else is going to do it. Yeah. What about the next time you talk to the players say, we're going to do that. What are you going to do, John? Hey, John, can you do this? Even better stand next to them in the defensive line. And when you run up, say, come with me, John, and show that you're invested in that. And he took it on board and it made a difference. And there's moments like that when it was a 30 second discussion with him. 
but there's moments where you just get this incredible opportunity to change a life or make an impact on someone and they grab it there with you. You can't do that on the first day. I can do it because I've known the coach for a long time. I've known the skipper for about 18 months. We've got a great trust relationship that I've built. And I can now be really honest and tell him exactly what I'm, I'm thinking. And he, cause sometimes he says, get lost Goldie. And I, <laughs> I respect that. Yeah. But yeah, you know, there's been a lot of moments like that where I've just, I've just gone, wow, you know, what a job this is to change another human being in a way that helps them take a, a big step towards the achievement of their goals. You know, you don't get to do that in too many jobs. No, and it's amazing. It's not just that. It's the flow on effect as well of you've convinced him to then really connect with his teammates and because he's showing that one-on-one connection of saying, come on, John, let's go do this together, you've changed him, but then he's changed that person and then he hopefully will take it on and that's that whole flow effect that if you don't do that, it's not going to continue on. Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's the essence of coaching. So I believe coaching is change. Why do you go to a financial coach to change your financial position? Why do you go to a, a life coach to change your life? I mean, that's basically in its core Coaching has changed. People go to a coach and say, change something that is important to me. And I laugh online when I see a lot of people offering coaching programs, particularly in the corporate area, where they're saying, if you do this program, it will change you. Well, no, all it does, the program gives you the information and knowledge that gives you the capability to change if you choose Mm. and embrace what we're giving you. That's The coaching is that. The coaching isn't the program. The coaching is inspiring someone to go wow I can choose to do that and I will get better and I once they start saying yes yeah and that's what coaching is really really about that's the art of what we do and you know we're sort of harping on a point from a long way ago that one of the sessions I do when I talk to coaches is this concept of content and intent and I say, you know, the, what we do is a blend of science and art. So when you write a workout, volume, intensity, frequency, 10 times 100 on 130, holding 115, everybody does that everywhere in the world. Not only that, I can go online and go top 10 training sets from Michael Phelps and I can download them. That stuff's easy to come by. Everyone thinks it's about workout writing. It really isn't. Workouts, get millions of them for free online. That... Everyone's obsessed with the content of our work. What's in our training set? What's in our periodization model? Uh, how many hundreds do we do this week? How many sets and on what speed do we do? Everyone's, and that's important, of course. But as a coach, when you write a workout, when you write the content, you write it with the underpinning assumption that the athlete will do the content with the intent with which it was written. Yeah. So your intent was that they did the work with good skills, they finished on the wall, they exploded underwater, they did eight kicks in three seconds and did a great breakout, whatever you, you like. And you've written a workout with the assumption that they will do the content with the intent with which you wrote it. And that's the art. That's yeah. that choice. The content is easy to teach. It's this bit, which is what coaching is all about, is creating an environment where you inspire the athletes to choose to do the work with the intent with which is behind it. I see a lot of time and effort and energy on 
talking about the content in work and very little on inspiring the hearts and minds of athletes to choose to do it to a remarkable standard. And when you talk about influences, every person that I've met in this business around the world who's great at what they do, that's at the heart of what they can do. That's why they're so great at coaching. I've met some coaches whose technical knowledge is not great, uh, whose understanding of sports science is not particularly good, but the relationship they have with the athlete, the athlete's choice to perform the content with the intent, all those things are there because of the art of their coaching. And that's the hardest thing to teach, but it's the most important thing we can teach. So there's hope for me yet then. <laughs> if hope you for all of us. I love that. That's brilliant. It has given me hope now. <laughs> so you've given and shared so much advice already. Is there any other advice you would touch on in regards for new swim teachers and coaches coming in? Yeah, just similar to what we've talked about. Don't be overly obsessed with with the what to do. Early on, of course, you need to know how do I teach someone to float? How do I teach someone to relax? How do I teach someone to push and glide and kick like every industry but don't become overly obsessed with it don't think that your lack of knowledge is your limiting factor you know it's interesting when I used to go traveling to I went to South Africa and we did a national coaching conference way back in the 1990s the first swimming conference they'd had for a long time because of apartheid at that stage they couldn't get a lot of information they were relying on the 1982 Ernie McGlisho book they were still talking about Doc Councilman's work from the 60s and 70s. I mean, all this was good stuff anyway. I mean, Councilman and McGlisho, Carlisle were, were brilliant and, and their work still stands up mostly. And But they were relying on old information. They couldn't get it. Now, anyone can get anything, anywhere, anytime for free. Any coach who says, Wayne, I'm not sure how to improve backstroke, is delirious because <laughs> I can be lying in bed at night and go top 10 drills for backstroke and Ian Pope, Bill Sweetenham, David Marsh will all pop up and say, this is how to do it. So any coach who says, I can't get the information I need is either lying, can't use a phone or it's just hysterical because that's not the limiting factor. Knowledge is not the problem anymore because knowledge is so freely available. If anything, the art has become more important and that aspect of our sport, the art form, which has been large, not completely, but mostly ignored for a long time has become more important than ever. So for the advice for young coaches, don't be overawed. Don't be stressed by what you don't know, because that's not going to limit you ultimately. Ultimately, if you have to, there's a lot of great pay for program things online that you can get. If you're really stressing out, spend, I don't know what they cost, 100 bucks a month, go and buy a bunch of programs and just reuse those. The limiting factor that you'll get is relationships with parents. I don't know how many times I would get, seriously, in the morning, blows my mind, I get 20 emails a day. Hi, Wayne, I'm a coach from Minnesota in the United States. I wonder if you can help me. I have a parent who, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Next thing. Hi, Wayne. I'm a coach from Auckland. I wonder if you can help me. I have a parent who, da, 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 da. <laughs> And so that is the stuff. 
more than knowing what's the right drill to do to improve butterfly kick. That stuff kills coaches, literally kills them, I think, from stress. And the stuff out of the pool is going to have a bigger impact and a bigger influence on sustaining your coaching career is understanding how to build relationships. And Sweetenham has a big influence on a lot of people, but Sweetenham said, he was doing a lecture once, I'll never forget, and he said, he was talking to national team coaches about how to deal with the aspect of being away and working with national team athletes and leaving your program. Because a lot of the coaches will say, the problem with traveling and working with elite athletes is that your home program crumbles because they've paid to come and work with you, not with your assistant coach. So Sweetenham said, well, you know, if that's your problem, for the last year before you go to the Olympics or the world championships on Saturday morning, say to the parents, you guys bring me a coffee and a couple of croissants and I'm going to sit with you on Saturday morning workout. You can ask me anything you like. And my assistant coaches will be taking training and you sit there and you say, wow, look at Katrina. God, she's amazing. She's come so far. She's the best coach we've got for breaststroke right now. Understands the stroke. The parents are going, he's sitting here. And he has complete faith in these coaches and he's telling us how good they are. And that's the only time of the week where they can talk to me and ask in this case and Bill and ask questions about the program and he answers the questions. And he said, and you know, I just said, well, okay, well, what he's doing is the coaches said that's their biggest problem, not VO2 max development because they can get all that stuff. But that, so I think as the coach starting out, you've got to say, what are my biggest obstacles likely to be? What are my problems? What are the issues I've got? And don't underestimate them. Deal with them. Don't become overly obsessed with heart rate, lactate, video, drones. That stuff's there, but that's not going to stop you from coaching. Day to day, what are you dealing with? What are the top 10 issues that coaches struggle with every day? Getting kids to keep coming, dealing with parents, finding pool space, finding affordable pool space, uh, becoming a swimming widow or widower because you, you're, you're gone all the time, your own health, your own mental health. They're the things that stop people from coaching and coaching at their best. I've never seen a coach give up because they didn't know the right drill to do for freestyle. I see them give up because they can't deal with the politics. Yeah, that's right. That's what kills them. So get those things in place and, and deal with them. And become a learner, just that beginning mind of, I often say to people, you know, you should pretend that you're a complete idiot. It's not a big jump for me. I don't have to go very far to be there. But <laughs> I know but the feeling. just approach things like you know nothing. Yeah. And you're starting from scratch and rethink. That's critically important. And learn from every source. You know, in our sport, you've got, you can learn from swimming. You can learn from other sports or you yeah. can learn from outside sport. The best coaches obviously know a lot about swimming, but how much do they know about rowing and cycling and touch football and other sports? And how much do they know about ballet? How much do they know about arts? What do they know about the nursing industry? I was having dinner with someone who who teaches nursing at Griffith Hospital and we were talking away and I said, what's the difference between a good nurse and a great nurse? And she said, yeah, it's a good question. She said, a good nurse knows medicine the great nurse knows their patient and she said i'll give you an example she said old guys had a heart attack 75 scared out of his brain a good nurse walks in and looks at the chart does blood pressure 
looks at his ECG, talks about his surgery, asks uh, how he's feeling, writes on the thing, walks out, good nurse. I hate competency-based training for this reason. She's a competent nurse. She's not a great nurse. Yeah. Great nurse walks in, pinches him on the toe, winks at him and says, how you going, good looking? <laughs> he goes, oh, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. She's still looking at the chart. She's still technically competent. She's still got but she's connecting with the patient. Yeah. He's connecting with her. He feels cared for. He feels listened to. He feels respected. He's lonely. His family haven't come to see him. He's frightened that he's going to die. And her first consideration is not what his heart rate is because she's got all that. It's for him. And that's us. It's not about what their speed is or their heart rate is. That stuff's there. It's about coaching. That's the key. And it was fascinating talking to her about the same issues that we go, teachers are the same. You know, the difficult to teach, the intangible, the soft skills of coaching are what makes coaching remarkable and same as nursing and medicine and, and everything else. So, you know, back to the question on advice to young coaches, that's where it's at. The other stuff, I've seen coaches are doing 30Ks a week be successful. I've seen coaches doing 80Ks a week. I've seen coaches doing no strength training produce gold medalists. I've seen coaches doing Olympic lifting be successful. That stuff changes. The what of coaching changes. The foundations are how you coach and understanding why you do what you do. That underpins and carries through all those trends that keep coming out and changing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely great advice there. And it is about working on what underpins. Also for you, what do you think swimming looks like in the future? I have a lot of fear for swimming. And I say that as someone not negative to Swimming Australia or to Swimming USA Swimming. I think swimming as a sport is in a lot of trouble. I think as a colleague in the Western Australia said to me that the reality is it's the least attractive sport for children and families. And that's true. The way that it is, the standard model for swimming around the world is kids in their mid-teens do eight to 10 sessions a week, morning and night, usually Wednesday morning off or one afternoon off, most of the time Sunday. The majority of meets are 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. all day Saturday and Sunday. Around the world, that's the standard model. In the last year, I've done some work with swimming from India, with uh, Egypt, with England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Latvia, believe it or not, a few other places. Standard <laughs> model around the world is that tell me one family that you've met who weren't swimmers themselves. So one family who says, I'm looking for an option. I'm looking for something to do. One family that would go, that's a really attractive proposition. <laughs> No. Now, the, the people in swimming will go, yeah, but swimming's a wonderful sport and there's great people and it's great. Everyone thinks that about rowing people think theirs is unique and rugby league people think it's the same. I say, look, guys, imagine I'm a parent of a family of children from a country that that doesn't have swimming high in their culture, you know, somewhere maybe from Asia, Middle East, somewhere, and they're walking and they're going, I'm looking for a sporting product for my children to play and all the sports on offer swimming, basketball, netball, cricket are all on a shelf in boxes like they're buying cereal and they pick up basketball and they go two nights a week. They get to wear NBA gear 
the game's all over in 45 minutes to an hour. I can stand there, talk to the other mums and dads and cheer and go nuts. So not bad. I'll put that in my sporting shopping trolley. They go and they pick up swimming eight to 10 times a week, 6 a.m., 6 p.m., all day Saturday, Sunday, particularly around holidays. They get the same medals and ribbons at 15 that they're getting at six. There's combined uh, heats of the 15, 16, 17s because there's nobody there anymore. <sighs> nah, what else you got? Yeah. The reality of the sport is not attractive to children and families. Now, when I say that, people say, oh, you're really negative. So no, I'm being real. That's what it is. That's, mm. that's what we are offering and saying, well, if you want to swim, you have to do that. I see swimming trying little things like smaller meets, uh, having better coffee vans, free Wi-Fi, discos. At the, I'm seen, I've seen thousands and thousands. I saw a, a group in South Africa say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to have mobile hairdressing so the mums and dads can come, the kids are swimming there, and we're going to have mobile. I've seen everything you can possibly imagine, oh and it doesn't God. work. And it doesn't work. Why? Because the sport is the coaches. The coaches have the relationship. The relationship between the sport and our clients, if you like, if swimming looks at them as clients, the relationship, the sport is delivered to our clients by the coaches. And unless the coaches are on song about where sport is, unless they're building quality relationships, unless the coaches are delivering the experience of swimming in a way that the kids and the families want it delivered, we're in a lot of trouble. And, one of the arguments I have with sporting organisations, and again, I'm not picking on swimming specifically, but I have this argument with them is, I say, how much money did you spend on marketing last year? And let's say it's 10%. How much money did you spend on admin? It's this. How much money did you spend on improving the quality of coaches and coaches around the country? 2%. Serious. It's never 5 but never even 5%. So the people responsible for delivering the experience of our sport to our clients, to our consumers, to our families, get overlooked. And everyone will say, yeah, coaching is important. Oh, we believe in coaching. Coaching's, I don't see it backed up by actual funding and resources. Incredibly frustrating because the better our coaches are, the better those connections are and those experiences are, the better our sport's going to go. And I often say it's a bit like um, McDonald's. Now, say McDonald's comes across this, incredible plant that tastes like beef but actually you eat it and you lose two kilos and you get taller and smarter that's this this miracle food right and they spend billions on advertising and they've developed it that's absolutely brilliant and it's going to revolutionize the food industry and there's people lined up to get into mcdonald's to try this super duper mega burger and they walk up to the counter and the person on the counter says, yeah, what do you want? Yeah. It's all over. It's yeah. all over. And that's where we are is I see sports inventing modified games and doing mixed relays in swimming and all those things. But at the real heart of it, if we're still coaching based on physiology only, if we're still obsessed with minutiae of technique, if we're still obsessed with developing capillarization of skeletal muscle and all those things. If that's what we think the sport is, we're doomed because it's just not, that's not where we are as a society. So I I have great fears for swimming. I've got great hopes for swimming Australia with Alex Bauman. I'd love Alex. 
Uh, super smart guy, very experienced, one of the greatest swimmers of all time, and he gets things done. I've great faith in Asuka. I've got a lot of faith in Rowan. I think he's a great leader. Of, he gets the sport. It scares me when I see in any sport where there's way too much influence from people from outside who don't take time to learn about the sport. And I see it in so many sports where they pay huge money for people to come in with marketing solutions who say, well, you know what? The sport's got it wrong. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with swimming. It's the way we're delivering it. That is the problem. And who delivers swimming? Coaches, officials, parents, and club administrators. That when I hear people saying, oh, we're going to change swimming and we're going to do 10 meter races and the kids are going to wear chicken outfits or, you know, <laughs> some marketing genius who's getting paid 50 times what you and I are, Katrina, comes in and says, you know what, sport's got it wrong. We're going to have shorter pools, bigger lanes, um, 100 people in a, whatever it is, you know, they, and I've seen it in cricket and rugby and netball. They all say there's something wrong with the sport. We've got to come in with a new version of swimming. Yeah. And you've seen them roll out, you know, and they come out and they've got posters and stickers and there's nothing wrong with swimming. There's nothing wrong with the sport. It's the way we deliver it. That's the problem. Yeah. We can still have kids doing 60 Ks a week in the pool. If we're coaching differently and we're coaching better, we can still have all day meets. If we're officiating more effectively, we're building relationships. If officials see themselves as educators rather than police cops, it's the way we're delivering the remarkable sport that it is. That is the problem. And it scares me when I breed stuff from, you know, they've brought in another marketing company and another advertising company. And they're saying that sport's got to change. No, the delivery of the sport has to change. And that means we, the deliverers have to change. Yeah. So look, it's not an insurmountable problem, but it needs a real visionary leadership and a commitment to move on to what we've done and the way we've done it for a long period of time. But I, look, I, I do have faith in the current group. I really do. I, I can't say that I've always been supportive of the leadership and I've paid a price for that, that it's a conversation for another day, <laughs> but the current group, I've got great faith in and I, I know they get this and I know I've spoken to them at different times about it. And I've got great faith in the uh, Sal and Asker right now. And I honestly believe that we've got to get behind them and, and back what they're trying to do. Well, amazing. Absolutely. Exactly what needs to be said and what needs to be put out there. And I think, like you said, we've got to back them and we've got the faith in them and allow them to do what they do. And we can take on board as well. It's not just up to them. It's up to us to promote our own sport and what we do. And like you said, change out the way we coach and learn the better way to do it. I think it's as much as we can support them, we need to support ourselves and do it too. There was a, there's a great story I like to tell Katrina probably to wrap up is I do a bit of work for Tennis Australia from time to time. And like so I, I get around and I think it's because... <laughs> Nobody can stand me for very long. <laughs> a, great fr- a great friend of mine uh, who used to be the CEO of the Brumbies and then went over to be the CEO of the Adelaide Football Club, Andrew Fagan, a great guy, University of Canberra guy, great bloke. And Fag says, Goldie, you're absolutely wonderful in very small doses. And, <laughs> and um, you know, I love him for that. But 
a story that I like to tell is about working with tennis and Craig Tiley, the guy who runs Australian Open, he, he's exceptional. He's the best sports administrator in the country, I think, by a long way. And Tiley's got a, he wanted to transform tennis because like so many other sports, they were struggling. And he got a independent management group to do a review. He asked if I'd help as a consultant ad, advisor and they rang me up after doing a bit of research and they said, Wayne, we think what's killing tennis is this mythical pathway model. And I said, why? And they said, well, the way that the pathway is interpreted and applied is that every kid who picks up a tennis racket, the assumption is they're on the pathway to be Serena Williams. They're on the pathway to be Roger Federer, on the pathway to be Leighton Hewitt and uh, Sam. And, and I said, I agree with this. That's what's wrong with it. And he said, because I'm, I'm thinking how many times have we said every kid who wins the under eights is on the pathway to be Kate Campbell. And he said, the way we look at it, he said, what, what you guys do, it's like saying to every kindergarten kid, when they pick up their pen, this is one I prepared earlier, right? <laughs> that he said, you're telling them to pick up their pen. He said, imagine going to every kindergarten kid in the, the country and say, when you pick up your pen to draw a horse or a rainbow or a unicorn or a fairy, pick it up that way. Because when you're an orthopedic surgeon, You'll need to hold your scalpel like that. He said, that's what you guys basically do. And he said, you know what? You've got to let kids draw horses and ponies and rainbows and fairies because then they'll keep drawing for the rest of their life. It was, again, one of those moments. That's a highlight moment in my life where this guy who knew nothing about tennis or sport but understood dynamics and change in systems. And he said, he said, I think that's what's killing you is that the assumption is that everybody who starts a sport it wants to be, he said, most people just want to draw pictures of ponies. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's what we've got to go with. We've got to go with not every kid needs to learn to swim like our great champions of the last 130 years. Most of them just want to learn to swim and have a wonderful time in the water. And then, yeah, sure, maybe one day they bring their kid back because, you know, they're sitting around at home in their late 20s, early 30s. Little kid says, hey, mum, I want to do something. And you go, oh, man, we're going to the pool. Why? Oh, because I love swimming. Oh, when I grew up, I had this wonderful, yeah, we've heard the story about your coach, mum. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah. You know, but the adults that have come through loved what they did so much. And sure, they never got, made the Olympic team and not many people ever do. Mm. But they left the sport at 15 because they wanted a job. They wanted to buy a car. They wanted to have a friendship with a male or female or both or whatever. They wanted to study. So they walked away from the sport, but they went, man, I love my time in swimming. And then they, when their kids at that moment where they were looking for something, they say, you've got to come to swimming. God, I love the, I miss it so much still. That's where we've got to be. That's, that's where our future is assured. If that's what our participants are thinking. If they're saying, whatever you do, going to swimming, shit, I was doing 10 sessions a week at 13. We're gone. We, we, we don't have a future if that's what the prevailing belief and the prevailing feeling is about what we do. So that's where I think, again, like anything, the future is really up to us. Yeah, it is. And it's a, to us to put it in and develop the kids and give them the enjoyment that they do then bring their kids back. And that's how we're going to build participation is that we can continue families coming back. Absolutely. Yep. I think I'm going to have to buy you a T-shirt. I, I bought it in a jumper that says, warning, we'll talk about swimming at any chance. 
So I think I'm going to have to get one of those and send it to you. <laughs> yeah, my mum my used to say, she said, it's really funny, Wayne, that you used to talk so much. Your teachers used to fail you at school. We were always telling them to shut up. And now you make a living out of it. It's so funny. <laughs> what do they say? Talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles. But um, Yeah, well, that's I, playing to your strengths. There's a great line. Of, I do a bit of media in New Zealand sometimes. And the producer there says, you know, I talked to him about it. So I don't think many people listen to me, mate. And he says, look, the key is, Every time you go on radio, 50% of people love you. 50% of people hate you as long as 100% of people are talking about you. And yeah. So that's good. I'm quite happy if I irritate the hell out of people as long as they're talking about the issues yeah. and talking about the sport, then, you know, we've had, a, uh, we've had a win. And speaking on that, if you do want to hear Wayne on the radio, go into Wayne's World, isn't it? I've listened to your podcast. We're about to kick up again. Beautiful. Uh, with SEN sport entertainment network in new zealand so i better start doing some work again with them um, my podcast is called sports thoughts sports thoughts if you go to youtube and you go wayne goldsmith coaching there's about 100 videos for free the ones that i'm the most proud of are the ones that are specifically targeted on parents and sporting parents because i think they are critical they're our partners if i often say to young coaches if you've got to look at the parents as partners in what you're trying to do bring them closer give them very clear understanding about what we need them to do, mm-hmm. particularly around things like developing values, virtues, character, time management, make sure they know their job's incredibly important. Don't fear them. Don't get angry with them. Bring them in and make them part of what you're doing. Uh, that's so important. And again, like everybody, go Wayne Goldsmith and all these social media things pop up. Please feel free to stay in contact and say hello anytime you feel like it. Definitely. That's it. And I'll include all that in our show notes so everyone can catch up because I think what you're saying and what you're sharing needs to get out there and hopefully we can get people on board and follow along and change how swimming's done. My pleasure, Katrina, keep up the wonderful work. It's been an honour to be here today and like so many of us, I'm about to head off to the pool so I have to bid you farewell. Yes, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing. I've learnt so much as always and, yeah, definitely just thank you for taking the time out of your day to record this. My pleasure, Mike. Keep up the great work. Thank you. You too. Bye.